1: G'day race fans, welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast, I'm your host Will Dale and here's what's making headlines this week. We're still waiting on supercars to reveal its 2024 calendar, it's not far off though, we're expecting it by the Gold Coast 500 next weekend, but there could still be a blank space next to round one and we'll talk about that more in this episode. Speaking of the Gold Coast 500, we also understand that the tyre bundles at the Chicanes might not be used this year and we'll talk about that a bit later also. Supercars had a weekend off after Bathurst, but Shane Van Gisbergen and Shaw didn't. The now four-time Great Race winner tackled Rally Bay of Plenty in New Zealand, and he won three stages on the way to finishing second to former WRC pilot Hayden Patton. The Australian Formula 4 Championship wrapped up with its final round at the Bend as well. Matt Hillier had already wrapped up the title, but his teammate Jake Santalucia won the round at Shell V-Power Motorsport Park to secure a Championship 1-2 for Sonic Motor Racing. And could we see a rising supercar star behind the wheel of a top Fuel dragster? Premier Racing Team owner Peter Shibiris is about to get his own driving campaign underway this weekend when the National Drag Racing Championship kicks off at the bend. He says he's offered James Golding a chance to have a steer of one of his top Fuel dragsters, but young Jimmy hasn't taken him up on the offer just yet. Joining me this week is a co-host that didn't follow the old primary driver to his new team, Stefan Bartholomaeus. And Steph, we might have to come up with a new bit to start the show. What do you reckon? Hello Will. I think you're right.
2: we do need something new, but we might have to wait until we actually disagree on something because that teammate joke that had <laughs> come out of Jamie Winkup ignoring those team orders a couple of years back at SMP and sort of the debate that that triggered on this podcast. so he's uh, hoping we can find some uncommon ground.
1: be <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Motorsport will provide. As always provide us with something exactly. Now, before we get into it, I do want to wish former host Andrew Van Leeuwen all the best in his new gig and also thank Aaron Noonan and the good people at Castrol for giving me this opportunity. They're pretty sizable shoes to fill, but I am very excited about the road ahead. Right, to get things underway, let's award our Castrol High Spec Stars of the Week. For me, I can't go past MotoGP in Indonesia, but it's not the stunning ride by race winner Peko Bainaya that gets the gong. I'm giving my star to second-placed Aprilia rider Marek Vinales for bowling out onto the podium dressed as Batman. Now, apparently it was the result of a bet between he and one of his teammates' crew. Look, it was all a bit corny and a bit weird, but to be honest, that sort of thing's right up my street. And let's face it, when you're named after a character from the movie Top Gun, you're going to be a bit of an odd unit. Steph, who are you giving yours to?
2: Well, firstly, I like the way you've taken the wheel here and shaken something up straight away. Stars of the (laughs) week, straight off the top. And it actually, it sounds like old Maverick would be right at home at Tickford Racing, which is where my star of the week is going. For the fact they're daring to be a bit different with their video content, Lately, like their drivers got plenty of attention by taking the Mickey out of the parody situation at Bathurst. And now there's a YouTube series where they buy AU Falcons and do goodness knows what with them. We haven't seen every part yet, but it's, it's incredibly <laughs> bold content for a professional sporting team to be rolling out. So, yeah, good on them for being different and having a crack.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I wonder how many takes the um, handbrake arrival in the Tickford Racing car park took to um, to get done. Because that looked, um, I would not want to have, want to have been Tim Edwards for that.
2: Well, I didn't actually look whether there was any uh, extra tire marks there on on the driveway because you can normally <laughs> tell if they've done a hundred takes, then they're
1: spraying it everywhere. <laughs> Sixty-four takes, and that was the best <laughs> one. Now, in the headlines at the top of the show, I mentioned that we're still waiting on a supercar's calendar. Look, what we know so far is that it'll likely grow to 13 events, with the return of New Zealand in April at Topor, not Taupo. So I'm going to have to work out how to pronounce that one consistently. And they'll still be at the Australian Grand Prix in late March, despite being bumped out of the Albert Park support category pit lane. We understand that the northern mid-season swing will remain intact, Hidden Valley and Townsville holding down their traditional spots in June and July. Bathurst, of course, has its traditional spot one week after the New South Wales Labor Day long weekend in October, and Sandown, which we'll live to see yet another year, will again be the lead in Enduro, and that'll be the event's 60th anniversary running. And then the tail end of the calendar will look a lot like this year's with the Gold Coast and Adelaide 500s, but it's the other end of the schedule that's the hold-up. Stefan, if you had to book your flight to the opening around today, where are you going?
2: Well, I think flying into Sydney would be a pretty safe bet regardless. But <laughs> yeah, clearly there's a lot of discussions going on right now between supercars and the New South Wales government and the Bathurst Council is now heavily involved in that as well. Bathurst is certainly firming as the location for round one with the plan to run it a week after the 12 hour and details of how that'll all look are currently being workshopped and, and worked through. But um, yeah, it appears they might have to announce the calendar next week with round one as a TBC, but who knows, they might actually get
1: this Bathurst event locked in before then. If, if Newcastle doesn't go ahead for next year, surely this is the end for that event. I mean, I can't think of too many street circuits that have fallen off the calendar, whether it's for supercars or anywhere around the world, fall off the calendar and come back. I mean, Adelaide's about the only example. I guess that's actually done that resurrection twice, once after F1 left and mm. it came back for the inaugural 500 in 99 and again last year. I just I just don't see Newcastle being so lucky.
2: Yeah, this is one of the big burning questions out of this whole topic. And, I mean, I guess funnily enough, Newcastle is an event that disappeared for three years due to COVID and came back. It's been True. a bit different in recent times, but um, who knows now, like... As everyone will have read at length, there's all sorts of complexities and politics within the council over this, and that's all still playing out. So I'm sure supercars won't give up on it if there's a chance of it coming back for 2025. But, I mean, either way, supercars will need to find a longer-term plan for round one, whether that's in New South Wales or beyond, because this Bathurst concept that they're working on is very much only for 2024.
1: How does the idea of a 10-day festival of motorsport at Mount Panorama grab you, though? Because that that does seem to be firming as the alternate plan, running the Bathurst 12-hour in mid-February and then holding the supercar season open the following weekend, but then filling all the days in the middle with some kind of on-track action to bring it under the banner of one event, and then that means they can circumvent the cap on the number of race meetings that Mount Panorama can hold in a calendar year. The, um, the six-day Bathurst One Thousand back in twenty twenty one, when supercars and ARG combined its events, felt like a really long grind. Four more days on top of that could be could be an interesting prospect.
2: This does kind of feel like a cheeky way to get around that five events a year cap. What they're sort of talking about, but I, I don't think there would be full track action every day, like a proper race meeting, like that twenty twenty one event. Was because I don't think the residents for a start would would cop that. It'd be more about that midweek period, what supercars can activate off track in the lead up to the first round of their season to make it feel like an event is ongoing, more like a festival kind of thing and probably borrowing concepts like that town to track that they do for the Bathurst 12 hour and applying that to supercars and all sorts of other things. So yeah, we're sort of yet to see exactly what this would look like, but it certainly wouldn't be... 10, 12 days of uh, full-blown track action.
1: I guess the 12-hour itself also runs for longer than just the three-day race meeting. I mean, the circuit's traditionally booked out in the days that follow for manufacturer drive days that just so happen to coincide with the manufacturers that are racing in the 12-hour. So I guess it's not implausible to fill a couple of the weekdays in between with that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, totally. That's a really good point because those uh, manufacturer days are very good revenue as well. So um the manufacturers pay big money to show off their latest toys to customers and you could end up, yeah, in those sort of early days of the week between the two race meetings essentially, with those um, you know, merchant bankers whistling past in their in their latest <laughs> bends while the V eight fans are there burying their booze for for the next week.
1: I mean, that what a combination. What a combination. Well, we, we should have some kind of locked-in calendar within the next week or so to know whether or not you need to bury your alcohol at Mount Panorama. So let's see if we have to call our good friends at the airlines and politely beg to adjust our fares for February. Looking ahead, though, we've got the Gold Coast 500 coming up next weekend on October 27 to 29. And after the Gen 3 platform survived its biggest endurance test to date at the Bathurst 1000, the Surfers' Round probably represents its biggest torture test – in particular with all the curbs and how much drivers have to use them in order to go fast. And to that end, it sounds like a significant change could be coming for this year's event. We understand that there might not be the tyre bundles at the apexes of the beach chicane to deter curb cutting like there has been in years past. And it's a move designed at protecting the Gen 3 car's front bars and hopefully reducing the pressure on teams to rebuild or repair them over the weekend or, heaven forbid, run out of them completely. If it goes ahead, it's going to have a couple of interesting side effects though, because in the Gen 2 era at least, the drivers used to use the bundles to actually sight the apexes of the chicanes because of how low they sat in the cockpit. And I don't imagine seeing apexes is going to be any easier in the Gen 3 car.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a few elements to this beyond Gen 3. Like, There's just always been a debate about how to police the curb hopping at the Surface Paradise track. And, yeah, last year some of the drivers, you'll remember, were very frustrated that they couldn't feel where the electronic sensors were during practice on Friday and it seemed really random when they were getting a strike. But then on the flip side, on Sunday, like the tyre bundles, like James Golding hitting that bundle in the back chicane, that Mm. caused that huge crash and it really put the spotlight again on how dangerous and how antiquated having tyre bundles sitting there on apexes really is. So... I believe supercars have been working with MoTeC on a system where drivers can actually get a notification on the dash when they trigger one of the curb sensors because previously they just sort of waited to be told over the radio if they triggered it, which added to the, the frustration of it all. So, yeah, they're still talking about all the options here and we'll see what they come up with, but certainly no system is perfect and they've been uh, yeah, sort of bluing about this
1: for, for 30 years on the Gold Coast. Oh, absolutely. Do you remember the last time the bundles were taken away back in 2011 and they just had bollards and sensors used to police the curb hopping? That, um, That didn't go so well, unfortunately.
2: Was that the year where they ended up turning the sensors off as well and people were two gears higher through the back chicane, just
1: like basically straight lining the whole thing? Correct. And that is why Will Davison's lap record from 2011 still stands today. Amazing. Whichever way it lands, it's sure to be an interesting weekend. All right, we're going to open up the Castrol mailbag now because there were so many questions off the back of the Bathurst 1000 last week that you boys couldn't get to them all. Plus, we got a bunch more this week, so let's start with Matthew Davis, who asks, "Should Bathurst revert to using hard compound tyres in 2024?" Look, I think that's a good shout, Matthew. I mean, the soft tyre definitely made the Gen 3 cars faster over one lap. I mean. If Brody Kostecki nails Hell Corner on his shootout lap, he's doing a three, and I don't think too many people would have put money on them being that quick before the weekend. But the soft tyre definitely didn't make for a good race day tyre, did it?
2: Yes, I think that was a pretty universal takeout from what we saw this year, and it's tough because when everyone is on the hard tyre, passing is really difficult. So in Mm -hmm. theory, there was some merit to the soft tyre, but it just didn't work in the race and at least on the hard tyre, drivers are able to push, you know, whether they're actual, actually able to get a move done or not is another matter. But, but who knows, maybe they could run the soft for, for quality or just the shootout and go for those Hollywood times and then
1: have the hard tyre as the race tyre. That's a good balance. I mean, and I guess the other thing with the soft tyre, the amount of marbles that were offline towards the end of the race meant that if anyone did have a want to, want to have a bit of a dip, well, there was a lot of risk attached to trying to make a move.
2: Yeah, there was, uh, there was debris everywhere, so um, that's <laughs> yes. that's something that we, we actually didn't see the full effect of that problem because there was no one close enough really to be having a go towards the end of the race, but um, yeah, that's something that a lot of people were talking about afterwards, obviously getting through the cars as well, people were thinking they were having steering problems because a big clump of rubber would, would fall out of the front bar and and all that sort of thing. Triple 8, we're talking about some of their braking issues, maybe due to rubber getting in the veins of the disc. So, um, yeah, I'm sure all of this is part of the supercars debrief of Bathurst 2023.
1: We've got another tyre tyre-related one from Christopher Darling, who asks, why wasn't the tyre degradation over a stint more noticeable and lead to more movement in the field? Steph, I reckon if you asked any of the Mustang drivers, they'd have said it was pretty noticeable over a stint.
2: <laughs> well i mean i think regardless of car brand the good drivers tend to be smart and they drive to a lap time that'll look after the tire so that, that was the main problem with the race right that drivers mm. were having to be so conservative to not blow the tires off the things and, and we've seen that through the year it wasn't just a Bathurst thing but it seemed like a bigger problem at Bathurst, and the classic example was Brody doing, you know, high eights, low nines in the last stint, and then just dropping a seven on the last lap, which just mm. showed ex- how much he had in reserve. It was just crazy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess it was, it kind of, in a way, was an old school Bathurst that everyone's been cry- that well. I won't say everyone, but there a certain section of fans have been crying out for, and in that sense, we very much got it.
2: Yeah, but we're just so used to that um, flat out, at the end, sprints between safety cars, that edge of the seat stuff that
1: it really, uh, it was a bit flat this year without it. If only Shane had won by six laps. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Glenn Boyd, not really a question, but can Motorsport Australia slash supercars please adjudicate the safety car line rather than just handing out a penalty? The David Reynolds drive-through was BS. How could either driver judge? Look, I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. Uh, I think one thing that didn't help the situation was that the TV broadcast was showing Feeney exiting the pits live, but then cut away just as he and Reynolds got to the line. And look, if they'd held that shot, everyone would have seen it. I think it probably could have been sorted out there and then without a penalty. Uh, Obviously, Triple Eight were onto it because they were immediately on the keyboard sending a complaint down the land to race control. But do you think Groves should have been given an opportunity to redress?
2: I think the whole thing is a tough one because, again, you talk about what we saw on TV, and there it looked like such a small crime, just getting to mm. that SC line half a car length behind Feeney and then ending up in front. But from what I gather, like, the real issue that officials had with it was that Reynolds pressed on up Mountain Straight and, like, passed Feeney, went over the hump on Mountain Straight flat out under yellow. Like, that sort of was the crime that he got punished for, and the bit we saw on TV was only sort of the first part of the story, but even then, like, I think it's one of those things, it, it comes back to the culture of what happens under yellow and what the rules are like supercars and motorsport Australia. They just need to get the field under control quicker when the safety car is called and, and not mm. even have people racing to the SC line in the first place. Cause the line was just after where Kevin Estra was, was in the gravel anyway. So the fact that like, David Reynolds is is pushing really hard through turn one, getting it out to the exit curb at the exit of turn one, like a meter away from where the other Penrite car is. Like no one seems to have a problem with that at all. But like that's where, that's where the danger is. So we, we've seen them trialling like safety car speed
1: limiters on the cars and things. They just need to get this actually implemented. I'm totally agreed in that. That would have been the world's fastest parallel park had Reynolds bowled wide and ended up in his teammate's door. Well, we've seen two black and gold cars have a crack at that before, haven't we? Back
2: in 85.
1: <laughs> they, they do love a retro scheme, right? but I don't think that's the one that they would have been <laughs> after. Um, uh, it has been something that we've talked about for so long now. I mean, even even you think back to the Australian Grand Prix weekend when I think it was Jack LeBrock in the MSR car that was parked, or maybe it was Cameron Hill yeah, that was, was parked Jack, up. And, yeah. yeah, and the field went blazing past. It's... It's overdue and it just feels like it's going to take something something not very good happening for it to actually be implemented. But then, I guess equally, it's not as though supercars hasn't had a lot on its plate throughout Gen 3 so far this year. Jared Curry has the next question. Thoughts on the lucky dog rule? I get it in NASCAR, racing to the yellow flag, etc. But what purpose does it serve in supercars? Look, I, st- I still like the concept for s- for supercars Giro's anyway, because I like the idea of more cars being in with a shot for the win at the end of the race. Y- yes, it's an artificial way of getting cars back onto the lead lap, but as we saw at Bathurst, it's not a free kick. I mean, the recovering cars still have to fight their way forward. I mean, as we saw with probably the main beneficiary from that rule, that Grove Racing car of Matt Payne and Kevin Estrie, they only got back as far as 11th. So as much as it's a free pass back to the lead lap, It's not a free pass to get you back to where you were prior to your mishap. Steph, I don't think we've actually chatted about the lucky dog rule before, but would I be right in thinking you're not a fan?
2: Well, we've uh, stumbled across our uncommon ground here, teammate. So uh, we've solved solved (laughs) that one straight away. I hate the lucky dog. And yes, you make a good point. It's not actually as big a free kick as it looks because they don't get the full lap back. They just get back onto the lead lap. But... I hate it because it makes everything through the whole day seem less consequential, including, yeah, the estray spraying it into the sand is a great example. Like the lucky dog just robs every moment like that of some of its importance, particularly in those early stages because there's so much time to catch it back up and catch multiple lucky dogs even. So the, the old thing was always about earning your ticket to the last hour. And now you can do something dumb and they give you a ticket anyway. So, yeah, I, I don't like that at all. It's not really motor racing. It's it's a charity formula.
1: Well, I think you're going to enjoy the next question as well from Dean Anthony, who says, in light of the reliability of the cars these days and the tedious finish, should we have a compulsory safety car at 30 laps to go so that we have a sprint race finish to the Bathurst 1000? Um Look, I know I just advocated for an artificial mechanism with a whole lucky dog deal, but sorry, Dean, I just don't see that one. Steph, would you like to see a CPS or, sorry, a CSC so everyone can punch their ticket for the final stint?
2: Well, I'm not going to dignify it with an answer, but the question's (laughs) interesting because it shows the diversity of opinion that's out there, right? Mm. Like, obviously for me, this is way too far down that showbiz path it, it undermines the sporting integrity of it. I just I just feel that sometimes in sport one team wins by a lot, but it doesn't mean you should be resetting the scores at three quarter time in the grand final. It it just so happened that was that was the longest you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but run of green flag laps to the end since
1: ninety one without a safety car, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah, with the 91 race had no safety cars and was the last the last running mm. of the 1000 to go un, uninterrupted. Yeah, sometimes it just happens that way. Yes. Craig Rattenbury asks, "Why did they fit used brake rotors to Shane Van Gisbergen's car and then wonder why the brake pedal was so long?" So It's actually something that's in the rules because teams only get two brand new sets of brake rotors and three new sets of brake pads to use from qualifying onwards at Bathurst. So you're allowed to use pre-marked sets throughout practice, but then you're limited to the new stuff for the race. Um, So if you're going to do two pad caliper rotor changes during the race, which Triple Eight did on the number 97, then you're going to have to reuse one of your sets of rotors.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think the second set was only a relatively late addition to the Supregs as well. Cause like the original design brief for Gen 3 was to be able to get through Bathurst without a rotor change, but there was a bit of concern around tapering and they ended up allowing a second set in case anyone wanted to do it. And yeah, as we saw Triple Eight AAA ended up doing two changes, which meant reusing their first set. But um, we'll see if they can improve the brake cooling in the future so they don't have to do one at all.
1: And there are a couple of questions about points that I reckon we can tackle in one hit. Dale Shelton asked, should the Enduros be worth 300 points each or 150 each? After all, a bad result, it either can make or break a championship. And this weekend has seen the championship reduced to only two drivers in with a shot. Uh, Brendan Thorpe comes up with potentially a solution to this. Uh, Should supercars introduce stage points in the Enduro races like they do in NASCAR? I feel like it would incentivise drivers who are in the championship race to have more of a go to win Bathurst if they've already banked some points earlier in the race. Brock Feeney would also not have entirely been knocked out of the title race too. Look, I don't mind the idea of stage points for Bathurst. even just split it down the middle and award half the points per how the field looks on lap 81 and then hand out the rest for lap 161.
2: These are really interesting things that uh, people are coming up with. I love uh, how everyone's sort of viewing things and and coming up with different ideas. To be honest, right. I don't think it, I don't think Bathurst needs stage points because it's such a track position race anyway. It's not like those NASCAR races, particularly those plate races where you just sort of roll around at the back and charge forward later on, so it's kind of yeah, that that's what I think the stages are solving to a fair degree there, but The points allocation question is an interesting one because it is a shame that people need to worry about points at Bathurst at all, I think, when they should just be all in for the win at the biggest race. But at the same time, it's quite a neat and tidy system where every round is worth 300 points regardless of the amount of races. So for me, that sort of comes back to like there's not enough rounds in the championship after Bathurst now where there's only mm. two, and there's not much racing left to actually regain points that you've
1: sort of lost at Bathurst, I think that's that's the problem we've got there. And those last two race race events that we've got are real roulette wheel car braking events where um, one wrong step at the Gold Coast or Adelaide could really change your weekend.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's yeah. It, it that actually makes it more open because even though Brody technically would only have to finish fourth in each race if Shane wins them from here, um, yeah, it's not not that easy to to just decide to finish fourth at those two events.
1: Indeed, Ben Kelso asks, how many combinations have won from grid position six? So I looked this up, and SVG and Richie Stanaway were actually the sixth combination to win from P6 on the grid.
2: I'm interested you looked this up because I feel like on the Sleuth podcast, this is
1: the sort of thing where don't you like close your eyes and you just manifest the answer? <laughs> By manifest the answer, we we send an email to Shane and he goes and <laughs> figures it out. Fortunately, I had the foresight to um, include all of these stats in the official Supercar Season Guide, which I'm currently, if you can hear it through the microphone, flipping through at the moment to actually dig out exactly who the combinations were that have started 6th and 1. Um, three of them actually now are from 888 because Jamie Wincup and Craig Lowndes did it in both 2006 and 2007. And then uh, I did look this up as well. There was a bit of 85 and, and 1990 in there. Yep, correct. as well. John Goss and Armin Hahn in 1985. And I believe John Goss's winner's speech is still going for those playing at home. <laughs> And Alan Grice win Percy with the first race win for the Holden Racing Team. And the other one's a bit of an outlier. It's the David Brabham, Jeff Brabham victory in the AMP Bathurst 1000 in 1997, the two litre race. Um, mm-hmm. They started from sixth, but also crossed the line second behind their teammates, Paul Morris and Craig Baird, who were disqualified for a driving time infringement, promoting the brothers Brabham to the victory.
2: I think to circle back to the first point you made about the fact that three of those six have been triple eight wins. The triple eight stats are interesting. That out of their ten wins, none have come from pole, and seven have come from fifth or lower on the grid. So that that sort of tells you something about how they approach the weekend. And that was really obvious in twenty twenty three. The way uh, they had such a good car with that ninety seven on race day, but it certainly wasn't the pace setter through the week. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Matt Haywood asks, where did the flames go from the test day? I assume they've trimmed up the fuel mix, but I was really excited when the flames came back at the test day and now they are gone again. Matt, you were not the only one who was very excited to see those flames. They were they were definitely a surprise when I saw all the photos from, from Sydney Motorsport Park, but I guess the teams weren't all that worried about fuel economy at that pre-season test, but they sure were focused on it at Bathurst.
2: Yeah, I think the flames are still there, but they certainly don't seem quite as prominent as they initially were. And, yeah, the, the maps have have evolved a little bit through the year. They've been tweaked a couple of times, which uh, some of them have been very high profile changes. It's got a lot of publicity. <laughs> so I would say any any changes come from that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, a couple of top 10 shootout related questions. First from Jeff Warren is the top 10 shootout worth more than $5,000. As a comparison, the 96th shootout, the fastest driver was award- awarded 15,000. Teams are putting their cars on the line. <laughs> Saying that, it was a top class driving in the top 10, in particular the younger drivers. Look, it's funny you say that, Jeff, because I was thinking about it during the race weekend. I actually don't remember the last time someone potatoed a car in the shootout at Bathurst. <laughs> I mean, I remember Russell Ingall bunkering at the chase in I want to say 04 or 05. But maybe PB, Brocky crashing in the 95 shootout was the last time. Um, I think it's also worth noting, though, sure, it's down historically, but the 5K is still a much bigger check than any of the other poll winners get during the year from Armorall.
2: It's, it's an interesting point about the poll checks that I know it's a commercial deal with Armorall, but I'm not sold on the fact that the poll winner check thing actually adds anything to the moment off-scoring pole position and if anything it just it feels a bit cringe having a driver get out of this one million dollar race car and being handed a piece of cardboard that says one thousand bucks on it or five thousand for for Bathurst it's sort of got a bit of dog and pony show feel where it should be a much sort of grander moment I don't know like I don't think the drivers need an extra incentive to get pole whether it's Bathurst or anywhere else
1: so you're saying we shouldn't bring back the um, armor-all horned Viking helmet?
2: I was thinking, do they need something <laughs> else to hand the driver? But if that's the best we've got, then maybe let's stick with what we've got. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tony Mara Bertalicio calia asks, why doesn't the Bathurst winner do a lap post-race for the fans? Uh, I think it's actually because of the fans that they don't do it. Certainly the ones at the bottom of the hill.
2: Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to stop a track invasion at Bathurst I would have thought, and, and this is why we saw a cool down lap for the Bathurst 1000 in 2020 when there were no fans um, pretty much at the mm. circuit. But yeah, unfortunately it's just um, how it is there.
1: Scott Mumby says, with the size of the pit lane for Bathurst, the biggest race of the year, why can't every car have its own pit boom? No more double stacking, surely this can be done. Look, room wise in the Bathurst pit lane, yep, that's probably achievable. Uh, But I think money and staff is the big handbrake on that one. Teams are capped with a number of staff that they can have trackside. And with that number, they physically couldn't do two simultaneous pit stops. So then to grow that crew, that's a cost. More rattle guns and gas bottles, that's a cost too. Although they at least already have fuel rigs for each car though, Steph.
2: Yeah, I'm sure if they really, really wanted to, they could do it. But as you say, money and logistics for that one race um, I mean they don't it's it's scary when you look back at some of the older stuff like say back mm. in 99 when they had 55 cars they had booms for every car didn't they like yeah, and they, they were sure just did. there was wings getting caught on by the air hoses and gantries getting pulled down like it was just just chaos but ov- obviously I, I digress when I'm talking about running 55 cars but um yeah, it, uh, it's certainly um, – un- it's just unfortunate the way the double stacking has such a big impact on the race. It, it really would be good if they could find a solution around it.
1: Well, Stephen Bell might have one. Um, can we please go back to teaming up two main game drivers in the same car the sooner the better? I mean, in a roundabouts way, that probably would <laughs> solve some of the double stacking issues.
2: What's, uh, what's your view on this? I, yeah, I don't think I've heard it before.
1: Look, I I do prefer having a primary driver stay in their own car because it does increase the number of combinations that can potentially win the race. Um, I don't as good as it was having having super teams, so combining your primaries and having one like red hot team that can win. Look, I just I just like the idea of having having teams with multiple opportunities to win it also puts a bigger premium on co-drivers and the quality of co driver that you attract and it also means that we can see a few more different names on top of the podium i mean you look back through recent year or any step of the podium really i mean um does david russell get an opportunity to stand on the Bathurst podium a couple of times if he's not a co-driver with Brody kostecki in the 2020s I'd, i'd like good driver, but I think his chances of doing so in a car that's mm. not got a regular primary drive in it aren't that high.
2: Oh, this is absolutely common ground for the two of us here. Yeah, more cars with a chance of winning is uh, is the biggest thing. And those co-drivers being such a big part of the show, they bring such great stories to the race. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on, on keeping it how it is. I think in the old days, it was good that teams like Triple Eight brought internationals. Like that's mm. for, the, for the second car. They felt more freedom to be able to do that because they weren't risking a championship. But, um, you know, if you look back at it, others were just taking pay drivers or doing a really half-assed job of running a spare car just to tick the box for the sponsors. So I'd certainly not like to see it go back to that.
1: Robbie Rowley asks, with all the parody talk, do you think supercars will send both cars to the States at the end of the season for wind tunnel testing so that we as fans don't have to listen to it all next season? Well, yes, Robbie, that's exactly what the plan is. One Chevy and one Ford will make their way to the US of A later this year. And it's sounding like it'll be a spare car from each manufacturer that will be used rather than one from a team's regular race fleet. But Steph, do you reckon this will end the aero parody debate once and for all? Well, it should help. I mean, the more robust they
2: make the process, the better off everyone's going to be. But I don't think the parity debate ever ends. It sort of just varies in its intensity and which part of the car that uh, is the focus. And we've seen that switch even a lot just during this year. And then every time a new model comes along, there's going to be just more debate again. So it's definitely a a good thing. It's They need to do it. So good on them for investing the money. But um, yeah, it's not an absolute silver bullet to everything.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Sean Doyle, Bathurst 1000 should be a thousand miles, not kilometres. This this is a new one. I haven't heard that stance before. Cars and drivers are too good now. It's over in six hours with minimal action. Now, I've I've gone and done the maths. Going to a thousand miles adds 610 Ks to the race distance. So that's... 259 laps instead of the traditional 161. I've got to say, though, Sean, I don't know if the cars are too good now because, as we've discussed, they certainly weren't flogging them hard for the 161 laps this year. And I don't think turning the race into more of an endurance test is going to generate more action.
2: The biggest thing here for me is that uh, you see people complaining that the category is too Americanized now with Camaro and Mustang.
1: Imagine the uproar <laughs> if they made it a thousand miles. <laughs> Oh, I want my Bathurst to be a thousand links to the chain, dagnabbit. <laughs> uh, Brad, before, before I squeeze too many more Simpsons references in, <laughs> let's move on. Bradley Dean, what teams are looking at Jordan Caruso and what does he have to do next? Driving a car at speeds and with that much horsepower, surely is a better indicator than 86s. And of course, Jordan Caruso set the fast slap of any driver across the Bathurst 1000 weekend in that beautiful John Gauley-owned Audi A4 Sport sedan. Steph Ewan, V8 Sleuth website editor Connor O'Brien, chatted to Jordan over the weekend at Bathurst, and he sounds keen to pursue that path to supercars. Do you reckon any team owners would be willing to take a punt and throw him in on an evaluation day?
2: Oh, look, I hope someone does. Like, he obviously knows how to steer that sports sedan very well. And he's a sim racing whiz as well. So he'd be mm. at a pretty high level in terms of, you know, the dedication and, and the consistency that you need for the sim to go well on that. Like, um, he would have all that side of it pretty sorted. And he's actually driven for Tickford in the Supercars E-Series before as well. So, um yeah, who knows? Um, um, hopefully, he's, he's asking the right questions and he might uh, get the right answer at some point. And
1: lastly, one question from Alistair Ronfelt. What is AVL's new gig? Now, Steph, we actually got this question a lot, didn't we?
2: Oh, let's not say a lot. That'll give him a big <laughs> head. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he said he wanted a change and was taking a job uh, at a cafe. I can't remember which one, but as you know,
1: I love my coffee, so I'm sure I'll enjoy his work uh, into the future. Very good. On that note, we might close up the old Castrol mailbag for the week, but thank you again for all your questions. There was a fair bit of racing overseas at the weekend. Kyle Larson became the first driver to lock his place in the NASCAR Cup Series Championship race with a win at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. The South Point 400 was the first of three races in the round of eight, which will whittle down the four drivers that will battle it out for the title in the season finale at Phoenix next month. Still in the US, IMSA had its big season ending in Giro, the Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta, and that was won by the Shank Racing Acura of Tom Blomquist, Helio Castroneves and Colin Braun, while sixth place for Action Express Cadillac's Pippo Durrani, Alexander Sims and Jack Aitken was enough to seal the title for Durrani and Sims. Matt Campbell finished fourth alongside Felipe Nasser and Joseph Newgarden in the first of the Penske Porsches, fellow Aussie Josh Bird and got onto the LMP3 podium with third place aboard the 74 Riley Motorsports Ligier that won the LMP3 title, while Scotty McLaughlin's Petit Lamont debut was undone by one of his co-drivers, who crashed their LMP2 Areca on the formation lap and then crashed it again on lap three. Uh, Scotty Mack went on to finish a distant 33rd in the repaired car. Now, at the moment, Toby Price is on the cusp of winning the World Rally Raid Championships with two stages left in the season-ending Rally du Maroc. He was nine points down heading into the event, but second after stage three, two spots ahead of points leader Luciano Benavides. If they hold on to those spots to the end, Price would win the title by three points, and the event wraps up on Wednesday night. And still on two wheels, MotoGP made its visit to Indonesia last weekend and the points lead changed hands twice. Jorge Martin won the Saturday sprint race but crashed out of the Grand Prix on Sunday while factory Ducati rider peho Bagnaya charged through from 13th to take the win in the big race and snatch back the points lead. Aussie hope Jack Miller finished 7th on his KTM and also got away with a low speed crash in pit entry after the race. Full marks to him, he copped to it straight after the race even though it wasn't picked up on the cameras. MotoGP now heads to Phillip Island this weekend for the Australian Grand Prix. And a little while ago, I caught up with MotoGP race winner Christopher Vermulen to preview all the action. Well, MotoGP is making its annual stop at Phillip Island this weekend. And Chris Vermeulen, I believe you're back on our screens as part of 10 Sports Coverage. Am I right?
3: I am. I am, Will. It's, uh, yeah, great to, uh, obviously, motorcycle racing is my background and what I love. And um, we're we're very lucky that we get a Grand Prix still come to Australia. And... uh, yeah, sometimes people ring me up to uh, to do a bit of uh, TV work. So um, back with Channel 10, the first people I ever worked with in television was Greg Rust and Daryl Beattie, I think about 10 years ago at Channel 10 and uh, did, a, did some did some TV stuff elsewhere. And, um, yeah, it's great that we've got bike racing back on Free-to-Air Channel as well So uh, for this round. So, um, yeah, looking forward to the weekend and can't wait to see the bikes.
1: Fantastic. Now MotoGP's had a pretty radical format change since the last time it was down under. So along with the Grand Prix on the Sunday, there's now also a sprint race on the Saturday schedule. They've definitely been action packed this year, but like, what do you make of the sprint race format and how do you reckon it'll translate to Phillip Island?
3: A really good question, I reckon. Uh, look, when it first was announced, I thought this is not a good idea. This it's not Grand hmm. Prix racing. Grand Prix is a Grand Prix on the Sunday. And we're doing it every round, so they're not—they're not just trialing it. They're just putting it for a whole season, and and it's half points, so it could really change a championship. But um, mm. the more I've seen it, the more I've liked it, and I liked it. There's a race on Saturday, there's one on Sunday, um, and I came through the World Superbike route, which had two two races, um, and you're not always getting the same winner races are different um and people know that it's shorter it's sharper um different tires can be used sometimes but I think the island is going to be sensational because generally it's one of the closest races we get in Grand Prix motorcycle Grand Prix the whole year because the track layout just makes for fantastic racing and you're shortening that. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, there was, uh, there was like 16 passes in the last two laps or something of, <laughs> between the leading group. Uh, what are we going to get in the sprint race, you know, for the whole race? So I, I can't wait to see it. Qualifying is going to be really important. But, um, yeah, those races are going to be sensational.
1: And we've got a bit of a world title battle heading into Phillip Island as well. Although it does seem to be between two now with reigning world champ Peko Bagnaia and Jorge Martin split by just 18 points both of them have looked a bit shaky in recent races. It, it is. And I still think, you know, Bagnaia
3: is the current world champion. He is the guy leading the championship again. He lost that lead uh, briefly on Saturday um, mm. l- last weekend. But oh, I, I still think the, the, the momentum is with Martin at the moment. Martin made made that mistake at that race uh, in, in Indonesia. But Bagnaya turned the bike around. I mean, Saturday, he really didn't have any speed. He wasn't competitive. Mm and sunday he comes out and wins the grand prix in really difficult conditions and that that was that was a smart ride those three guys on the podium in indonesia that was a, the conditions were difficult the track was slippery tires were were falling apart the bikes, electronics, and aero weren't helping everything. And, and those three guys managed that situation very well in Bagnaya, uh, Vinales and, and Cotteraro. And, uh, I was really impressed with, with, with a lot of rides in that race, you know, going back to Gigi Antonio, Brad Binder doing too long lap penalties, but getting back to the championship, I, I really think Jorge Martin is the fastest guy at the moment. He just, you know, that was one mistake. He hasn't made many of them. Let's see how this unfolds. When it gets to the pointy end, and when when the pressure comes, but both those guys are going to be quick this weekend for sure.
1: It has always feels strange to be talking about a MotoGP world title battle, and Mark Marquez is not part of the conversation this year. I mean, I, and this will and this will be the last time we see him on a Honda at Phillip Island, at least for the foreseeable future.
3: Well, well, it's it is, isn't it? And you know, we haven't spoken about Mark as a championship contender since he had that massive arm injury, and uh, trying to come back from that. Um, the, he, what he went through is amazing. But mm. obviously, he is still Mark Marquez. He's, in my opinion, probably the most talented rider still out there at the moment. But the Honda just hasn't developed the same as some of the European manufacturers, in particular Ducati. So you know, big change for next year, massive um, that he's that he's moving. But we've got to remember last year, he stood on the podium here. That was his mm. 100th Grand Prix podium in the in the Premier class. Uh, I mean, second place on the Honda that wasn't competitive. You know, the other thing that I reckon's quite exciting, and I only thought about this last week, Alex Rins was the race winner and, and he's coming back from injury. A strong ninth place in Indonesia, loves Phillip Island, you know, maybe those two guys could both get a Honda challenging uh, challenging at the front of this Grand Prix.
1: That would be remar- a remarkable turnaround given the year that they've had just as a company. And as, as we all know, Mark's off to Grasini ducati next year. What's your take on how all that unfolded? Like, was it yeah. inevitable? <laughs> well, it's like I thought it was all
3: games on, uh, on Marquez and behalf to try and get Honda to change situations and, and things. I thought, nah, this is not going to happen. First of all, from the financial side, you know what you know the rumors are that what he gets paid from Honda, and um, it'll
1: be hard to, to walk away from. Yeah, be hard to you. walk away
3: from. You know, but obviously he's well off, very well off, and he's done. He's been very successful, and he just wants to win races, and he really thinks this is an opportunity for him to to try something different. How that's going to work is that's another that's another story, you know, because Mark's always been a guy that's been able to get more out of the motorcycle than the motorcycle can give him in a, in a way or give anyone else <clears throat> the way that you caddies have won in the last few years is not like that you have to ride to what the bike is giving you and the bike gives you a lot and it, it's going to be interesting to see if mark can adapt if his style will work with a bike that has all these electronics all these aero devices and you can't stick your knee out in this corner because it's taking the aero away or is marquez has never had to do that He's just gone and ridden and got the most out of himself and and made the bike do it. So don't get me wrong. I think he's going to be fast, but it might take him a little while to adapt. Um, but let's see. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he, he's extremely fast on it and can challenge all the other Ducatis and uh, win
1: some races again. So on the flip side, though, what does this mean for Honda? They've now lost their golden boy. It's been like, it's been, this is probably the lowest they've been since, what, the early 80s when they were trying to make that four-stroke 500 work against all the two-strokes. How long do you think it'll take them to write the ship?
3: Well, they still are the biggest motorcycle manufacturer in the world. They do spend, I think, more money than anyone else in MotoGP or have the have the capability to spend more money than anyone else in MotoGP um, and they want to win again. So it's just going to take them time, I think. And I, and I think that's the main reason Mark wanted to leave. He realizes he's 30 already. He doesn't have the time. Honda has the time as a company mm. to get back there. Um, but who are they going to get? You know, everyone's yeah. signed up, and they are going to pull somebody out of a contract. There's, there's no doubt about it. That's what they've got to do. Who would you chase? I don't. I mean, there's some, there's some really good guys. They've been talking. There's rumor about Miguel Oliveira. Yeah, you know, he's mm. extremely intelligent, very good as a bike developer. He'd ridden a KTM to a high level and a to a high level. So could he bring something good? I mean, Maverick Vinales, top guy on a Yamaha, top guy on an Aprilia, But is he a fighter? Is he gonna? Is he going to win for them, or is he just going to be very good at helping them to develop the bike? Um, I mean, there's Fabio Quartararo has got to be someone on their list as well. But can he get out of his Yamaha contract? I mean, it's I can't wait to see this unfold, and um, I'm only guessing at the moment. But
1: yeah, it's uh, it's interesting for us guys for sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, being Australia. Jack Miller, the homeboy from Townsville. He's on a KTM this year. He was on a Ducati last year. And of course, the last time Jack raced a KTM on home soil, it went pretty well. That Moto 3 race back in 2014 when he beat Alex Marquez and Alex Rins in that slipstreaming thriller. How do you rate Jack's chances this weekend?
3: I think it's not too bad, to be honest. He struggled in the last few races, but Jack's. Um Jack's love race loves racing at home. Um, mm. we've got to remember he's got a corner named after him, play after himself around <laughs> yes. the island now, so that that's very cool, isn't it? You know, um, he got taken out there last year, unfortunately, but um, mm. yeah, no, he was strong here on the Ducati. Um, it was always one of his stronger rounds. Um, like I said, he loves coming home, he's got his family there, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna be a dad, he's gonna have his daughter at the fir- first time at a race this time out. So, um, and I think the KTM is gonna work quite well. This is my prediction that. It could suit this track. Um, I think Brad's going to be very fast. His teammate as well, Brad Binder. But yeah, Jack's Jack's going to give it all. If he could step on the podium again one more time this year, um, this would be his pick of places for sure. So, uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against
1: him. What does it do to a rider to race in front of their home crown? I mean, you did it several times, and like you said, Jack always seems to grow extra legs at the island.
3: Yeah. I wish I did. Cause I, I didn't. It didn't, it just didn't work for me, but um, our bike wasn't particularly good at Phillip Island. And um, I, I found it harder. Like I loved coming home and racing in front of my friends and family, but it, it just found like a, a stressful weekend. You know, you're, you got so much more to do on top of your racing with hanging out with friends and, and, and trying to get everyone passes. And um mm-hmm. there's extra media. Um and the weather generally at Phillip Island can be a bit iffy. Um saying that I had my first ever podium down there in 06, but generally um it didn't work for me. But there are a lot of guys that they love going home and that's their that's their their big thing, you know, and, and and they do grow extra legs. And um, yeah, Jack, it seems to it seems to really buzz for Jack. I mean, um, it worked for Casey Stoner, didn't it? I mean, he was sensational mm-hmm. around that place. So um, yeah, some of the guys it works for and yeah, I can't... If I knew what, how they did it, Will, I would have done it myself. But yeah, I can't <laughs> put my finger on it.
1: Well, it's not just MotoGP at Phillip Island this weekend. Of course, there's also Moto2 and Moto3 categories and they're always full of action. In Moto2 this year, Pedro Acosta's pretty much been the man all season. He can't lock the title up in Australia, but he is two, two full race wins ahead of his nearest rival. And he's already guaranteed graduation to MotoGP for 2024. How do you reckon he'll go next year in the Premier class?
3: Look, I, I think Pedro is sensational um he is you know they they talk about him as the the next Marquez who knows Mm. he could be even better he could be better than Marquez he could be better than Rossi um he has a talent he has ability he's able to manage situations at at such a young age you know winning that that Moto3 championship as a rookie second year in Moto2 he's he's dominating and he's, he looks like he should get on a good motorbike um, in MotoGP. Like that KTM is improving a lot. Um, it'll be a Gas Gas branded bike, but yeah, it's a, it's a KTM and and they've got him in the fold. So, but saying that, you know, some guys that have won the Moto2 Championship have come through and struggled um, in, in MotoGP, and other guys like Fabio Quattararo didn't really do a lot in Moto2 and, and look at him, world champion, mm. won a lot of Grand Prix in the Premier class. So it's it's very different. It's a formula. You have to be able to get the most out of the tyres, the electronics, the aero packages, and you have to have a good team around you. But I really think Pedro Costa is a star um, and he is going to be someone that will be running winning races, sorry, in in not too distant future in the main class.
1: Down in Moto Three, they're almost always guaranteed to put on a slipstreaming thriller, <laughs> and we've got an Aussie to cheer for, and Joel Kelso. I mean, he seems like a great young talent, but it's been a rough old year for him, hasn't it? It's been a really rough year.
3: I mean, he's had some bad luck, some been taken out a few times, a, a few few mistakes from himself, and uh, ended up in the in the medical center. And he's had he's had a sore year, I reckon. Um, but Joel is he's he's, um, he's really shown it. You know, I I reckon he's got the speed um he just hasn't been able to put the whole package together but um yeah he's he's gonna, he loves he's another one that loves coming home um it was his first australian grand prix last year um and uh i, I think he's gonna want a good show I th- and potentially there's a top 10 in there who knows maybe even better i'd love to see him challenging inside the top six but um yeah cheer on joel kelso i'm sure all the aussie fans down there will be so uh, it'd be
1: great to see him race again absolutely and just lastly chris who's your tip for the win in moto gp
3: I mean, there's like eight guys, but <laughs> if I had to just pull one name out of the hat, I'm going to say Marco Bezecchi.
1: Oh, that's there a good go. call. He's I had think, a strong I think year that well.
3: collarbone's going to be better than it has been. I think the guy's got a lot of talent. I think he doesn't have the championship pressure of the two main guys, and perhaps the Ducati is going to have a little bit better speed than some of the other bikes. But yeah, that's my reasoning. There you go.
1: Thanks to Christopher Mullen for joining us. Like he said, he'll be part of 10's coverage from the island this weekend. They're live and free on 10 and 10 play from 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturday and from 12 to 3 on Sunday. All those times, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Right, I've been looking forward to this. It's time for what's caught your eye on My 105. Steph, what's getting your cash this week?
2: Well, I love a little Group N car and this week I've found an NB Isuzu Ballette for sale in Melbourne, which is listed for just 16 grand. It probably won't win too many drag races, but it's a neat little thing and the Ballette nameplate has some cool racing history as well. I mean, the fact that Colin Bond's first two Bathurst starts came in Ballettes is the sort of uh, fun
1: fact that's surely right up your street. Oh, absolutely! I mean that. I've I've just done a quick search and I'm looking at the ad now. That that's a cool looking car.
2: It is. I could definitely see myself in one of those.
1: Oh, it's even got green. It's a great little green eyed monster with green headlights. How good!
2: <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs>
1: um, look for my choice. Well. Given your former co-host nabbed the hall of open wheelers I'd originally had my eye on, I've (laughs) decided to go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. In fact, I've gone all the way to Finland this week because there are quite a few international listings on my 105 along with all the Aussie ones. And what I've gone for is a bright orange 2010 model Renault race truck. Now, the big rig's definitely equipped with a big donk for the big day because the listing says its Cummins engine can put out 1,200 to 1,600 horsepower and if that's not enough, it also has a NOS kit that can give it an extra 300 ponies. And yes, it's in Finland, but happily it can be shipped worldwide. And I think it's up for grabs for a neat $88,000. And let's face it, for the amount of fun you can have wheeling it around the tracks of Australia, that is a very small price to pay.
2: You've made a big debut here in the My 105 segment. That is, uh, <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. It sounds like you're going to be up for a fair bit in, uh, in postage and handling, though.
1: I mean, worth every penny. Worth every penny. Uh, Not just postage and handling, but also a new garage to fit it in because I don't think the truck would fit in the current one.
2: It might crush your Volkswagen Beetle.
1: (laughs) Not Lenny. And, well, on that note, that's it for this week. So, for Stefan Bartholomaeus, I'm Will Dale, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a fresh episode of Castrol Motorsport News.